Welcome everyone. Welcome to the Physiatry Mentors. I'm Dr. Sheena Buva. I'm Dr. Benicia Williams. And together we are <laughs> And today we have a special guest, Dr. Aslan Tariq. He is actually one of the first physiatrists to um, see that there was a need for um, setting up PM&R electives for medical students during this COVID pandemic. So we'll kind of go into a little bit of detail about what that entails, how his electives are doing. Also, he has a very diverse private practice that he'll go into as well and kind of give some advice to graduating residents. So thank you so much for joining. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time out. So um, Sheen and I, we kind of got together, I believe it was towards the end of February, early March, and we foresaw that there was going to be a gap in medical education for people interested in PM&R. So we decided to come up with, you know, the virtual mentoring, physiatry mentors, and you definitely have done a great job. It seems like you foresaw um, something very similar happening. So we want to hear a little bit more about that as well about yourself. Tell us where you're from and tell us um, a little bit about your educational background. Sure. So we'll talk about myself first. I grew up in Pakistan. I was 18 when I moved, went to undergrad in New York. So I'm a first American. Um, just medical school in Florida. They give an osteopath. Like, I think both of you guys are osteopaths. I can't remember if you are or not. I am. Sheena okay. is. Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, regardless, then I went into uh, doing a fellowship, a residency at Mary and Joy Rehab Hospital. It's a freestanding 150 bed hospital, acute hospital in uh, Chicago, outside of Chicago, actually. And then did a fellowship in the uh, sports and spine. But to kind of back up a little bit about like why I picked PM&R, I actually was lucky enough to get exposure in brain injury as a counselor and an undergrad. A job just landed, it was a summer job. I decided to do it, ended up loving it, ended up you know, falling in love with the disability um, you know, uh, profession and taking care of people with disabilities. And then that kind of led me to being an osteopath and then got into residency with the intention of you know, doing brain injury. But Halfway through residency, I realized that even though I love the patient population, I loved uh, the whole aspect of care for those patients, but I love sports and spine more. Initially, I thought I was more into interventional pain and, you know, I love procedures. So, you know, to fill the gap in my residency, I decided to interview all over. And actually, one of my favorite practices was um, Desert Sports and Spine. I know you guys had them over a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I interviewed a Furman and a bunch of, you know, programs out there, got to meet a lot of the top people. I ended up doing a academic PM&R non-ACGME fellowship, but half the through fellowship, I decided, realized that I didn't want to do interventional pain all day. You know, I, I wanted more of a sports medicine kind of practice. Um, and I got the, the right, right skills in that, that kind of training with the injections and just being, you know, more comfortable with fluoro, more comfortable with uh, diagnosis, imaging. But I realized that my patient population I really prefer to take care of are either general rehab or their sports. And I think everybody kind of like figures out what they like to do as, as you go on your career. So uh, that said, you know, um, majority of the attendings that I was um, talking to by the time I was finishing residency, you know, were really not pro working in the SNF setting. We'll talk about that later on. Also weren't really pro uh, prior practice and said, you know, it's really difficult. Is it possible? And and I'm kind of, uh, I don't know, like a little brave about that and a little more gutsy than people that I know. And I said, you know, I'm going to do my own thing and see, see where it takes me. If worst person worse, I'll get in my own job. So I interviewed at a bunch of practices, ortho spine, ortho only, PM&R, academic, non-academic, just to kind of see what's out there. But the kind of personality that I have and the kind of control that I wanted my patients and population, you know, I felt best route for me was uh, doing uh, my own independent practice. So we'll, we'll talk about that hopefully later on as well, what kind of setup I have. 
As far as the virtual rotation is concerned, so since I graduated fellowship in 2012, 2013 approximately, um, I've had students with me, you know, since then I have, uh, you know, pre-meds and meds and residents and I've taught in a bunch of residency programs locally. So I've, I've been exposed to like, you know, getting myself exposed to teaching on a regular basis. But I was on uh, Twitter for a while, but one of the students that is probably on the call right now, uh, Raghav, he said, hey, you got to come on Twitter. It's like the med Twitter world is amazing because I told him to get on LinkedIn. I told him to get on other, you know, medias, but like I really didn't even know that med Twitter existed, honestly. Um, and usually I just use it to follow some, you know, athletes and, you know, NBA news. But, you know, as soon as I got on, I was like, I was shocked by the amount of number of attendings who were involved and the, the students who were seeking for help. And I felt like there was something that I had to do. You know, uh, I'm in a position now in my career that I have the ability to help people. I'm not saying that I didn't have it before, but, you know, with the number of doctors that are, you know, in our group and the resources that I have, I felt like I had to do something. And then obviously seeing you guys do it, I was like, you know, obviously like this is what, you know, charity and volunteering is getting encouraged by other people doing it. I saw you guys, you know, doing what you're doing and other attendings that said, you know, the least I could do is set something up. And there was obviously a need for that. All of a sudden, all these students had uh, lost their rotations. And so that's what got the ball rolling. Initially, I was like, you know, maybe you might have five or 10 you know, students might be interested. You know, I sent out that survey and we had close to like 80 students interested. So it was it was absolutely insane the amount of need there was. The hard part of that was sorting out who needs to start when. And thank God I had help. I had a couple of students helping me out and, um, you know, sort out who needs a rotation when, talking to medical schools to approve it, what months, that, you know, they have it, how many students, where, do they, where are they going to be? How are we going to actually do this virtual rotation? Like, you know. Uh, they're not actually getting, you know, patient to, uh, you know, student contact. They're not getting hands-on. Like, do they get enough exposure? So I, I had to step back and start thinking that, you know, if I was to design a perfect rotation, what would that be? And consider the limitations we have right now. So the perfect rotation for me, and we can talk about it later if you want to, is going to be as uh, wide as possible to so seeing inpatient, interventional, outpatient, and getting didactics. So it's a combination of those things. Um, and then, you know, as much as possible, getting uh, patient interaction, direct interaction versus like just, you know, being a student in the back and just watching and also getting them exposed to the business of medicine, stuff about co contracts and what's ACO, what is peer to peer. I mean, as a student, you have no idea what those are. Talk about what is billing, what's code, you know, what do you have to know about marketing? How do you set yourself up? How, what kind of fellowships do you apply to? I mean, you know, some of the students are on the call and, you know, they can hopefully will give feedback on what it's like, but I designed it as broadly as possible. And then, you know, I, that's, that's where we're at now. So we're almost at the end of the month. It's one week left uh, before the first batch finishes. And my initial thing was that I wanted uh, to have the students who did not have a rotation or students who only had one elective that was canceled because mm -hmm. they probably will never get a, a chance again, possibly to have first dibs. So that's how it started off. But then thankfully, a lot of schools have started opening the rotation spots and they can actually do it in person now. So for me, like, that's perfect. That's what I wanted. I wanted to help bridge the gap in which students had nothing to do and they had one elective and they needed PM&R. And a lot of them actually were interested in PM&R for years, but they were waiting for that one elective to get that exposure. So I'm able to help bridge people out. There's uh, five in this group. There's going to be four or five in the next group, probably the same in the next group after that. So that's where we're at. Good. Well, you took my, my next question. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you you uh, read my mind. So yeah, it was really, I was looking on Twitter and it was almost exactly two months ago when you posted about, uh, you know, asking who's interested in, in doing this. So 
the I'm just curious about the attendings. Are they people that you work with or did other attendings just around the country volunteer and kind of step up? And how well, exactly I mean, is the rotation kind of set up? Like what would the student do? Yeah, everybody's a volunteer. And um, again, the, not having set up a rotation before was your virtual one, you know, having the number of people, I, I didn't know what kind of barriers we would get. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't know what kind of uh, what time commitment, cost commitment, obviously the prior practice, you know, you have limited amount of time to begin with. Right. And then I'm not an academic attending who just gets a salary. It's all based on my production. You know, that's right. what I am. So, but regardless, you know, it was, it was tough and, you know, knowing what kind of tech we need, what kind of platform is a Zoom, uh, who's going to carry the camera around or the tablet around? What kind of feedback do the students get? Timing. I mean, it's, there's so many different dynamics in that. So, I'm, I'm, you know, thankfully with my uh, my student, with my, my skills, I kind of started to figure it out. But uh, with the rotation, initially, you know, my uh, I, I gave a talk in the very beginning. I had a bunch of students uh, show up to give the intro about the rotation. And at that point, you know, majority of the attendees that I was talking to, this is back in like um, May or, or late May, I think early June, the, the attendees that I was talking to that I wanted them to get exposed to, at that point, they were actually saying that, you know, we would be happy to do this, but if you're talking about us dedicating four to six hours a week teaching students, not just a typical way of doing it, you know, there potentially should be some kind of reimbursement. And that was kind of a tough thing. And then, you know, I obviously switched over and I found attendings who were willing to volunteer the time, like you guys are doing on a Sunday evening. And I switched over and said, I, I need attendings who are able to give whatever they have because, you know, students are not going to be able to afford. And, you know, it, it feels really weird to ask students, especially to give money on a time which, we, you know, they don't have any money anyway. And it's kind of a not a good scenario. But anyway, we were thankful enough that people were able to donate to get us the iPads and the accounts and whatever resources we need. It wasn't a lot of money anyway, but regardless of that. So the the rotation was completely free. Uh, That said, the rotation set up with uh, my practice one day a week, the sports and spine practice. Uh, They get to actually interact with the student, I mean, a a patient. So the the camera is taken inside the iPad and they get to talk to the patient, uh, ask history. They present that to me. In the meanwhile, I have them write notes so I can give them feedback on what a good note looks like, uh, talk about some billing stuff as well. They get to see me examine the patient, talk about different maneuvers. Then majority of my clinic, usually I do injections the same day as the visit. So might be a trigger point, might be a steroid injection, PRP. They get to see a lot of regenerative stuff as well, prolo PRP. Then we talk about the patient like a normal rotation would be, but in this case, you have five students. Um, that's one day a week. Two days a week, they do inpatient subacute rounds with my colleagues. Then one day a week, they do uh, interventional spine, who's just um, high-level procedures, RFA, stims, um, you know, that kind of stuff, epidurals, facet jog, blocks. And then uh, one day a week, we have didactics only. So that's uh, about four to six, five hours of didactics only. And the way that is led is we have two guest speakers every week. Usually, like, for example, we had a uh, someone did gait analysis for uh, prosthetic orthotics, uh, spinal cord, uh, business of medicine, uh, PMNR's history, uh, what else we do, general rehab as well, kind of a mixed bag of things. Then I give a talk as well. Then I have each of the students give a, a presentation, like I'm sure you guys do in your uh, clinic as well. But every week they have a, a topic. And the way that I've done exactly the way that I would want it is if you see a patient with interesting diagnosis, I kind of assign them that this is your patient, so pick a, this is your topic, they present that. And because we're making this to do a study as well, we're gonna hopefully get this published uh, as time goes on. Uh, we had a pre-rotation um, 
quiz to kind of see the general PM&R knowledge. We do it after the rotation. Um, and, you know, this could be a concept that can be used in the future, I feel like, you know, especially with international students or, yeah, but, you know, yeah. if someone is in California and they want to spend time with you, why shouldn't we be able to do that, you know? And one of the things I was concerned about was that medical schools would come out and say, there's no way we're going to prove this. Surprisingly, they're like, yes, we've been looking for this. Can you become an, a faculty for us, like being an associate faculty? So that was kind of shocking for me because I figured they'd say virtual rotation, you know, you might not get enough education in that, but it was the opposite. They said, we actually want to send you more students. So, you know, I took that as a positive thing, you know, and hopefully that expands on, but that's kind of that. I said a lot. So how many students do you have right now that you're finishing up your first month? And then are there any kind of changes you would make for the next month? I definitely think you should write up some kind of guide how to do this as well, because I think a lot of places just need to know how. I think it's fabulous what you're doing. Yeah. But thanks. Uh, it's five this month, probably about four or five next month as well. And it, it changes. And again, it's all based on need. If there's a student who's like, well, I can't, my, uh, you know, the hospital's not letting me, they decline my rotation. And if they get accepted, I said, that's fine. You go do your rotation. I think nothing beats in person. You can't beat that. Uh, but this is a really good second option. Um, as far as what I would change, maybe give them more diver diversity in the rotation. Uh, you know, I, Again, because I'm not academic, I don't have hospital, you know, academic hospital privileges, you know, and the hospitals, the people that I've talked to, the, my colleagues who work in the academic settings, uh, they tried to get the rotation going, but they couldn't, they couldn't get approval from their administration. A lot of bureaucracy, yep. A lot of bureaucracy, yeah. And even outpatient practices said, you know, we, we can't, our legal team has said not possible. Mm -hmm. So I would love to expand it to maybe add PEDS in there, maybe, uh, you know, spinal cord um, as well. But with my inpatient or subacute practice, we see enough of everything else except PEDS. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, these, they've seen athletes in my clinic, they've seen chronic pain, they've seen all kinds of diagnosis. So it's pretty diverse. I wouldn't change that. Um, yeah, that's the only thing I've changed so far. Yeah, I think that, I mean, this sounds like an awesome rotation. I would be so excited if I was a medical I'm like, how can I sign up for that? <laughs> <laughs> I would spend a day in the clinic with you. <laughs> I know it seems like you're taking it month by month based on, you know, the need, but how or how far, you know, do you think that you're going to do this for? Like how many more months? Yeah, I was talking to some of my internal medicine and other uh, colleagues that work in that setting, and they're like, how are you even doing this? And why are you doing this, first of all? Like, what are you, Mother Teresa? Like, why are you, what is the, what is the reason for this? And Honestly, for me, like it feels great to help people out. And I'm sure that's the way with you guys, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you got to train them up. For me, like it was about, you know, pass it forward, you know, pay it mm -hmm. forward. You know, the reason that I am who I am is because of the attendings that I spend time with and I interviewed with and, you know, and I wouldn't be where I'm at if I didn't have help. There was no way. I'm, I'm a first generation immigrant. None of my parents are physicians. So I'm, I'm only who I am because of people that I've helped out. So it's the same exact, you know, desire that I need to, it's a mission of mine to help, you know, uh, students to become better physicians or, you know, it doesn't matter if you do physiatry or not. Better. And I feel like, you know, you guys obviously did academic and, you know, except the fellowship, you know, with you, Sheena, uh, you know, the big disconnect between academic and when you go to prior practice. And I feel like, and I don't, it's hard to know for sure you guys can say about this, like, is it intentional that the academic or academia does not teach the students how to be prior practitioners so they're they they want to keep everybody in house is it intentional or is it just because they don't know or they're comfortable in where they're at but i feel i like think it's a just, combination of both <laughs> right so, 
And I think it's a, dis it's a disservice for us to not teach the students how to practice independently. Right. Um, so for me, if I can have students see that I can do what they, a lot of them, they end up telling the same exact thing, just like you probably did. Uh, I want to start up my own practice, you know, as medical students, I want to have my own office. And then as soon as they hit academia, they're like, uh, that seems too difficult. You know, it's impossible. <laughs> it's not though, you know, and you guys are examples of that. You know, it's, it's work, but it's not impossible. So anyway, that's kind of the reason I, I want to keep on giving that whatever I've learned, my mistakes, like you don't have to make the same mistakes, but if you did, it's okay. You know, right. I think we're definitely all peas in a pod, <laughs> very much similar <laughs> mentality, right? Right. What about, you know, are there any spots available for students who are maybe are still looking? Are you still taking students for your rotation? Yeah, I am, but it's going to get, uh, it's going to get, I don't know. It's hard to know for sure how long I'm going to uh, continue this. Yeah. Um, it just, it's taking a lot of time and, course, you know, yeah. and I, I, I you know, I, I love, you know, donating my time and doing what I can. And I'm the kind of person that, you know, I'm sure you guys are the same way. I'm all in. I'm not going to basically like uh, have them spend time with other attendings or not, you know, give them talks and, just that itself is taking about six to eight hours a week. That's a full day of work. Right. So that's coming out of my family time. So would I want to continue this indefinitely? You know, probably not. Uh, as soon as I can, I'm going to get students back to my clinic. Um, and, uh, but that said, it's hard to know. But, you know, I think it's the next two months we have. So after that, it's hard to know. No, that's wonderful. So we will switch gears a little bit. You kind of talked about um, being in private practice and how PM&R is very diverse. I have a very diverse private practice, um, as you know, we all do. Um, tell us a little bit more about your practice. Well, I saw your schedule. I think it was on Instagram or somewhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it was, or maybe it was YouTube. Like you had your schedule. Yeah. And I don't think you do the same thing every day. Like I don't think back to back you have the same thing. Literally yeah. every day is different. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, Sheena. You have a kind of similar practice, or I think you're mostly. Well, so mine is mostly like sports and spine, mostly spine, yeah. EMGs, yeah. injections. Yeah. Sure, my practice, like I don't do the same thing every day. Like I have, it's so diverse. Um, I don't know if it could be any more diverse than this. So example, I do sports, spine, regenerative medicine. Um, I do medical legal, which is IMEs, life care plans, uh, uh, personal injury, work comp, uh, depositions. Uh, that's all part of the, you know, uh, med legal, which I love med legal. Because uh, usually, you know, especially if I'm an advocate for the patient and try to help them, you know, get what they need can't beat that. I don't do malpractice stuff. I don't do a lot of other stuff, but that I definitely do. Uh, then I do um, the subacute rounds. So subacute, you know, we'll talk more about is basically a huge unmet need uh, of patients out there that really need a physiatrist, but they don't have. So definitely do uh, subacute rounds. Then I do admin. So I'm the chief medical officer for a company. So uh, 150 of uh, providers that we have across 30 states. So I'm kind of managing all the clinical protocols and coaching and teaching and pretty involved with APM and R. I'm in the brand expansion committee, which is an awesome committee. One of you guys hopefully can get on it because you're so passionate about this. It's like a perfect fit for you. And what that committee is really is expanding the brand of physiatry and how can we change the mindset of whoever is most responsible for the healthcare system right now. And who's really responsible for the healthcare system really is the payers and the policymakers. Doesn't matter if every single patient wants a physiatrist, if insurance doesn't cover it, then they're not gonna go see him. So, you know, changing the mindset, you know, we're actually like more of a doing ground, you know, ground level thing to talk about the next 20, 50 years about PMNR. So how do we get integrated into medical school education to the PAs and NPs and kind of on and on. So, I mean, I'm involved with that. I'm involved with CMS quite a lot, you know, a lot of meetings in Baltimore. Uh, and then 
I don't know if I'm missing anything else. No, I, I, teaching as well. So, you know, it's a combination of things. I mix it up pretty well. Yeah, you don't have to oh, do it, that's for sure. <laughs> forgot one thing. I have a business. I forgot about that part. <laughs> so I'm going to forget. So I, you will love to hear about my business. And I think almost every single presider I've talked about this, they're like, oh my God, that's like my dream. So in my clinic, and let me tell you about this, my clinic, um, I have four or five offices. I'm sure you guys have, you know, similar, probably more. Um, it's me. I have a chiropractor, a functional medicine uh, physician, uh, an MD, and we have a personal trainer. And the personal trainer does what's called medical fitness. So uh, it's prehab, it's post-hab as well, post-surgical hab. Uh, someone comes in for knee pain, and I know that that's what their main issue is. Oh, I forgot, we have a nutritionist as well. Uh, so I had them talk to the nutritionist, get personal training for a while. And if obviously pain is inhibiting what's going on with them, then I'll treat that. But typically it's because they're overweight or functional issues or biomechanic issues. So of course, if they need therapy, they get therapy. But a lot of times training is what they need. They, gotta, they have to learn or teach them how to use their body or move their body. So the trainers are under my supervision. So I manage all that. And then it's a really good way of getting referrals, obviously, because everybody ends up seeing their own patient population and they come and see me for you know, expertise. And it's all under the same roof. So we all get to talk to each other. Um, so I, I, that's, that's a big part of my practice. So that's yeah. awesome. I love it. But Isha, we talked about that, like having a compound where like everything is all in like one place, right? <laughs> It'd be amazing. It would be amazing. Um, I'm curious when it's like that, you know, we always hear about like, um, not, what's it called? Oh my gosh. Stark law and stuff like that. Is that an issue in a, in a practice like that? Not, not necessarily, especially if you're not getting any kickback. That's what it is, right? So if they're all independent, then there's no, no issues. Okay. Like they're not paying me rent based on how many people they send me. There's no like right. connection to right. that patient, patients or clients. And it's basically like being in a practice when you're, you have an ortho and you have PM&R and you guys go back and mm -hmm. forth with patients, exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So nice. yeah, it usually is a, it's a stark laws when you have like, you know, you have a kickback from any service someone gets. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you mentioned, you know, subacute rehab and um, you haven't named your com the company yet, but it's uh, integrated rehab consultants. And I know you're the chief clinical officer there. So how did you get involved with that, that group? And I know there's um, probably some residents some graduating or PGY4 residents that may be interested in subacute rehab, inpatient rehab. So is, is this a good group to kind of start off their careers with? Sure. Well, I'm going to ask you guys a question if you can answer this. Uh, try to guess how many physiatrists in the U.S. at the current moment are doing subacute rehab. Oh, God. Random guess. It's kind of um, hard. 300. You have, you have, a, you have a guess? Anisha? I, I, I would say something like that, three, 400. 1,000. 1,000. Okay. Yeah, and that, and that is it's not still cool. <laughs> yeah. That does not include the NPs and PAs who might work with them, you know? That's oh, only wow. for okay. Patients. So you're probably talking about 1,500 or more, you know, maybe less than that, but approximately right. that number. Uh, obviously, you have 8,000 physiatrists. So, you know, there's a lot of subacute, you know, obviously, physiatry out there. Uh, as far as the number of patients who are currently or over a year, they get acute rehab is about 300,000 um, in, the, in the U.S., and there's 1.6 million patients who get subacute rehab. So more rehab, five times more rehab is happening in the subacute setting. So why are 10 times more physiatrists in the acute setting? So, you know, 
and it's because it's changed, you know, it's different from when I was in residency. So when I was in residency, and I'll talk about subacute, but when I was in residency, we had a subacute unit in our uh, free setting rehab hospital. So we saw the continuum of care. We saw we had acute rehab consoles, like literally ICU consoles, uh, acute uh, consoles to get them to rehab, acute rehab, and then transition obviously to a home or, or subacute rehab. So you stay as your attendings, then they would have outpatient. So you had the whole continuum of care. There's no like, you know, oh, I'm sorry, we're gonna see you in a month outpatient or maybe in a couple of weeks, or maybe you'll ever, never see a physiatrist before. So there's, uh, there's obviously a need. Our attendings in residency, all of them, they're all prior practice, uh, they're academic, but they're prior practice. They all had uh, subacute practices. Uh, this is back in, you know, they started mid nineties. So subacute rehab is not new. It's becoming more popular now, but it's definitely not new. But things have changed, obviously, and you probably see a lot of this when you say, in which like uh, insurance companies are denying patient care. Mm -hmm. the, you know, a lot of the patients are not qualifying or they're, uh, you know, too sick to get acute rehab and not, not well enough to go home. Uh, all the managed care plans, the bundle plans, you know, they, they have their own, you know, values, what they want to you know, uh, pay money on. Regardless, there's a significant need for patients in that setting. And what typically happens is that people go to the subacute setting and never see a physiatrist, typically never even see primary care. They might see a nurse practitioner, maybe. And what does that do? Rehospitalization goes, hospital care goes up, falls, fractures, disability, deconditioning, all these things, especially nowadays with COVID, socialization goes up. So all those things are basically things that Medicare insurance companies are trying to you know, reduce cost in. So that's where we, we come in as physiatrists. So, Dr. Patel, Amish Patel, the CEO of the company that you know, Benicia, like he started the company back in 2010. He was my uh, chief resident and I was the third physician in the company after, after fellowship. And again, I, we saw the need. In residency, uh, you guys probably remember, maybe it wasn't for your case, but we had an ortho unit in our residency, in our inpatient rehab with the knees and hips. That unit got shut down while we were in residency. And I don't think I saw a single knee replacement, hip replacement in my three years of residency, unless it's a complicated, you know, sepsis, UTI, or bilateral or, or yeah, bilateral, right. severe obesity. Right. So, and that's where the patients are going. So I'm basically following, our group is following the patients. And the insurance companies at this point are actually demanding physiatry to be involved. It's not even like us saying that, hey, we want to be uh, the, the physiatrist with the patient. It's the payer saying, no, we see a value in you. That's what we've always fought for, right? We've always fought for like someone saying, we love physiatry. And I'm hearing from like Anthem Blue Cross is like, no, actually we want physiatry. So yes, I mean, that's, that's, that's what you want. You know, we want our three on the table. Uh, we want that the patient population to get the care they deserve. So that, that aside, that's the patient population. What do I do in that setting? So in the acute setting, you know, obviously a lot of times we're the primary. So we manage their internal medicine issues, their everything, right? So we pretty much are the primary care. We might be reverse in which we, in the inpatient setting, we might be the uh, secondary physician or maybe the physiatry, physiatrist, but they have internal medicine coverage, kind of a co-management model. In this setting, we're the consulting physician. So seeing patients, following patients twice a week, three times a week based on needs with the same goal, reduce pain, reduce dysfunction, get them home in a safe environment. And the facilities and everybody you partner with, the studies behind this that show that we can do that. We can reduce health. We can reduce the cost of care. So as a group, we're across the country in certain states, all of us, including Dr. Patel and myself, like we're all independent contractors. So we have an umbrella group on top of that us, you know, that provides support. 
but we're all independent contractors. So it's, it's nice because I get to do anything I want. So my clinic is independent, my EMGs or IMEs or anything I want to do. Um, and I, my practice is based on what I want to do. So someone's like, I really want to do spine cord. Absolutely. You do that. We have people, uh, docs who want to do wound care docs who want to do Botox. I mean, any kind of practice style you want. So there's no one who's telling you what to do or how to do it. We give guidelines, obviously, and you get a ton of support. And, you know, it's very different from the outpatient setting. And obviously you guys both know this. If I have a cancellation, I have a cancellation, you know, uh, that's like lost time. Maybe I'll catch up. In the subacute setting, you know, I am going to the facility, so I get to make my own kind of, you know, style or timing or things like that. So it's my work based more based on me. So if I round at eight or ten, whatever time, it's all based on me, just like how you do it in inpatient as well. So I get to go room to room versus waiting for someone to kind of get someone. And so the it's very streamlined in that sense. And because we're not the primary care, one of the significant issues that I had with inpatient rehab, and maybe Sheena did or you probably don't at as much was call and was uh, you know internal medicine uh, you know I was like I'm not an internist I mean I, I love it but I don't want to manage SIADH and I don't want to manage insulin and that's me you know not everybody's like that and I oh I, we're I, like that <laughs> we don't want to do it <laughs> that is us <laughs> I, I know some internal medicine team and our you know a board, double board certified docs but and they like most, it most of us, because it's, it's not as easy anymore. It's getting right. more complicated. And we could, like when we were in residency, like, oh, it was like second nature, you know, when you got yeah. that cold, but as you gotten out, it's like, mm, no, I don't want to do that. You got to manage like cancer drugs and you got to manage like, you oh, know, God. transplant medicine. And I was like, the prograph, right, exactly. The FK levels. I'm like, wait a minute, this is bringing me back. <laughs> I do what I'm good at, which is the rehab pain. Um, and then they do what they're good at. We work as a team. Uh, I'm still the team leader as in, you know, I manage uh, the rehab team. I do bedside injections, uh, ultrasound. I have a portable ultrasound machine with me, the butterfly thing we talked about briefly. Uh, the students have seen me do it. I, I just did a performance. I do SI joints. I do all kinds of like peripheral joint injections, bedside. The patients love it, obviously, because it's someone coming to them doing it versus the outpatient. So all that said, you know, the satisfaction I can't beat, the flexibility uh, financially because you're independent. Obviously, like 70% of your paycheck is not admin, which is usually how it is in academia. So, you know, I, you know, you live a comfortable life. You don't make like, you know, interventional pain uh, stims all day kind of money, but you, you're, you do you're well. Yeah, right, right, right. Your bills are paid. Up in, right, yep. exactly. exactly. Now I've done some subacute when I, um, last year, I've been out of subacute maybe for about six months. We just left a facility not that long ago, but like even the primary teams that we worked with, they love having physiatry there. We worked with a nice practitioner closely. She loved having a second set of eyes. Like who wouldn't want a second set of eyes? another physician when they're only there two or three days a week and you're like they're the other days so um no right it's and it's what's best for the patient at the end of the day yep. exactly but it had challenges though obviously I can't it does. It challenges. <laughs> the course. challenges are that every the, the common saying is that uh, every sniff uh well let's say if you have two sniffs they're both different i mean there's like no comparison every single one even if they're part of the same umbrella group or you know part of the same organization and they might have shared staff but they all work differently. It's way less organized as a hospital setting. The staff is not nearly as confident as the acute rehab setting. Documentation can be challenging. But in the end of the day, for what I think about is the patients need me. The other challenges, it's, it is what it is. You know, I could be in right. a terrible country. It doesn't matter where I'm, I'm at. Patients need me. I'm going to do what I can. And I feel like um, orthopedic surgeons 
are happy when they're they know their patients are going to a facility where there's a physiatrist. I used to talk to orthopedic surgeons all the time. I'm like, hey, like, I'm gonna send them. This doesn't look great, or I'll hear, I'll take a picture. This is what I'm thinking. I'm. This is what I'm doing. You know, if you want any kind of imaging, let me know. But they felt good sending them to where we were at. Same. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Should we open up for some questions from the audience? Yes, please. <laughs> All right, we've got a few here. So um, Shivam Patel says, I've seen a lot of things about ACGME versus non-ACGME accredited fellowships. Yes, we had a good talk on that. Um, episode four is on our YouTube channel. Check it out. On your journey in physiatry, has it made a big difference doing one versus the other? Is there a difference in what they emphasize? Yeah, we have a whole, like Sheena said, we had a whole kind of hour talk and please, as long then you can kind of tell us what you think, but tell us I'm like, you get paid the same at the end of the day for the same procedure. Right, yeah, and we didn't have any issues with accreditation, so I went to non-ACGME, I went to Desert Spine and Sports Physicians, and Benicia did her sports medicine fellowship at ACGME, um, fellowship at JPS, and at the end of the day, neither one of us had issues getting credentials or anything. So, but yeah, but really check out that that episode. It's a good episode. We had um, two other physicians join us. One did ACGME pain um, via PMNR. One did ACGME pain via anesthesia, and then Venetia did sports med, and then I did um, non-ACGME. So check check that video out. Let us know if you have any questions. All right, Sierra says, "What are some things that were important to you when looking for a job?" finishing residency and fellowship. Can you repeat that? Is that what are important to you or? Yeah, what, what was what was important to you when looking for a job? I think for me, it was uh, the people who were gonna hire me. That was probably the most important thing because they're part of your family at that point, you know, so I'm sure Benicia felt the same way. It has to be that, you know, that's probably the major reason because- You spend it, a lot of time with them. Right? Because <laughs> uh, I mean, you can, if you, I've, I've heard so many cases and I don't want to go into, you know, some of them of people being treated horribly, you know, contracts and, you know, not getting paid or getting fired or, you know, those kind of things and being mistreated or, or, or let's just say, you know, practices that are unethical. That's probably the best way of saying it. And you don't realize that until you show up. Yeah. Um, so if you know someone beforehand, that's the best way to do it. And what I did uh, that I wanted to stay in Chicago is I spend uh, you know, a couple hours with attending, you know, uh, or, you know, ortho practice or PM&R practice, whatever it was. I just want to just want to get this feel of, you know, this person's personality. Uh, and, you know, when um, actually interviewing for jobs, you know, if they, if possibly they can open up their books uh, mm -hmm. to kind of show you, it's hard. Most practices are not open to that. And the ones that are, then you kind of know they're transparent and they're, yeah. they're fair. That's exactly right. Yep. Right. So if you can kind of see mm -hmm. what their peer mix is, um, you know, what their overhead is, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, because if they tell you what, what it is, it might not be the case until you actually see it. Right. So for me, that's important. Totally agree. I think, was it like location, autonomy, um, pay? Mm -hmm. What's the fourth? I feel like there's one more other thing. Those are kind of like the doing what you want to do. Yeah. yeah, priorities for it. And I know for Sheen and I, which it sounds like it's very much the same for you, autonomy was huge for us to be able to run the type of practice that we wanted to run. So that was definitely a priority for me and then Sheena too, we were looking for um, our own jobs. And location. And location. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was I was personally very biased towards working in the PM&R group. Obviously, you know, makes sense because I had a bunch of my colleagues who 
had offers to become a partner, you know, on initial signing up and then five years later and seven years later and really nothing really happened. I mean, they really never became a true partner. Maybe like you could buy in. But I think as a resident, you don't think about those things, but you should start thinking about those things. What does that mean? What is a buy-in? Uh, you know, are you buying into the MRI machine, the therapy? And are you going to basically uh, split the overhead? Because obviously surgeons have a significantly higher overhead than we do. And are you going to be a voting partner? Uh, have other physiatrists in the group become partners? How long did that take them? Those are the kind of things you got to think about beforehand. PM&R groups are usually more fair about that because, you know, the same specialty, they'll probably make you partners and overhead is lower. But those are the kind of things to think about. Also, like going towards, like, is it a guaranteed salary versus some kind of, uh, you know, uh, based on other, you know, productivity or that kind of thing. So those are things that you got to think about. We don't have enough time right to discuss all those things, but those are kind of things to you kind of get a gauge of, you know, for a practice. And also, one last thing is if find out if they have another physiatrist who was in the practice and if they left, try to talk to them, find out why. That will save you a lot of heartache. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah. And in my practice, there are actually two PMR doctors. So I work in, with a, a lot of surgeons as well. So it's a mix, you know, subspecialties. Um, and the two PMR doctors that were there have been there. It's been their only job since they've come out of residency and fellowship. So they've been there for like each of them 10 plus years. So I think that says a lot also about a practice, you know, um, longevity. Well, yeah. And, you know, they really like it and it's very fair and equal partners and all that kind of stuff. So important all right all these questions coming in guys okay <laughs> shivani says um do you recommend doing a fellowship or would you have felt comfortable going straight into practice after residency can i answer that <laughs> i think you should do a fellowship. it's the one time in your life in which like you're already in education it's one year it's gonna go by fast and it's difficult to go back to do a fellowship Imagine either one of you, like, you know, leaving your practice for myself, like right now to do the fellowship. Nah, I don't think so. This is really, really difficult. Uh, I mean, I know people who have done that, but it's significantly more difficult. Um, you know, if, if you think that your residency is providing everything you might need, and it's difficult for PM&R to provide a, such a broad exposure in three years, because you got to do inpatient and outpatient and EMGs and you know, ultrasound, regenerative medicine. If you add it all up, three years is not enough. For me, it was basically whatever training I lacked in residency, I was gonna get that on top. And yes, it gave me the kind of the baseline of what I know, but whatever I've learned in practice is way more than what I learned in fellowship. Sure, it gave me a nice like, you know, ground to lay on, but you learn so much even after. I'm still learning, I'm constantly learning. We're both learning. You guys, while you're teaching, you're learning. Every day. But the one thing is get it out of the way. I feel like it's just done. Yeah. It Especially if you want to be more interventional. Like if you want to do more interventional fluoroscopy, ultrasound, I 100% agree that you need to do a fellowship. Right. Yeah. Especially when getting credentialed at different places, right? They want to know how many procedures you've done. And no matter so you got to present a log. Yeah. How much hands-on your residency has. I mean, you know, these spine injections, I mean, you get better every year doing them. So, you know, I don't think necessarily coming right out of residency, you should be, you know, totally comfortable with going straight into, you know. That's how it used to be. 10, year, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, majority attending just came out, did weekend courses, and that's how it used to be. But now when everybody's applying, and it's easy as applying with the fellowship training, and then you're applying, they're like, no, we're going to have an easy to do all the epidurals, you know, you can't. Uh, and that could happen. So to make your profession or your career more you know safe i think makes sense and also 
I don't know if you guys do med legal, but I do med legal and the attorneys are rough to work with, you know, cause they, they're going to try to do anything they can to, you know, you know, find faults in your training, but all I have to say is I'm fellowship trained and that, that conversation ends. So if, if I say, I, I know how to, you know, I know what epidural injection is, or I've done that in clinic and you know, that's, that's it. They don't, they don't go any further to saying, is it ACGV or not ACGV? They, they don't know, or they don't understand the difference or they might, or they don't care. Uh, board certification is what matters, you know? Um, so those are more important things, I think. But anyway, fellowship, just get it out of the way, in my opinion. All right, we got two similar questions here um, from Alvin, Alvin and Rajab. If you decide to start a private practice right out of residency, where do you get your patients? How do you get the ball rolling? And what factors made you decide to go into your own practice? Hmm. Okay, so far, why don't you answer that if you want, Benita? So, um, I am in a group of five, so I was very fortunate to join my mentor's practice. So he definitely was the type of person like he and my other partners ramped up their practices for me. So when I stepped in, that I took over, I went to sniff. I was doing some acute um, inpatient rehab. I was doing consult. So these things were already built up. So to do a solo private practice would probably be a little bit more harder because you won't have someone there to ramp it up how I had it. Um, but you would, it's market. You have to be able to market yourself. You have to get hit the ground running, meet these primary care physicians. You have to tell them what payment R is, what it is you do, what you have to offer and what you and how you can help your patients. Um, marketing is huge in private practice and networking. Every little network. When I first started every networking event that we had here in Fort Worth, I was at marketing myself and telling people who I am like no most primary care doctors don't want to do back, back pain I'm like I'm a back pain specialist that's my favorite thing to do so they're like oh my god yes so um yeah you gotta just put yourself out there and meet people definitely and it's not easy you know I'm an introvert I don't like talking to, to I'm her wing woman, I'm her I wing woman. <laughs> so um I mean it's but you have to do it and you know these are positions you need to make relationships with in your community and they'll see you know you do, you know, you treat your patients right. They will see that. Other patients will go back and tell them, hey, Dr. Williams talks great. They treat me really well. You know, they listen to me. And so that's kind of how you get that referral. Again, marketing, doing your own, you know, I'm fortunate we have a really big marketing team um, at my practice. And so they do a lot of stuff. Um, but I, we also do, Nisha and I do a lot of stuff on our own social media, you know, on our own social medias and things like that. So, yeah, my, my marketing team is me. <laughs> so, <I'm not laughs> one. so I think the answer to that is complicated. Depends what kind of practice you have. Um, I think it also is based on location, geography. If you're in a small town, you probably don't have to do it. If you're the only show in town and you're the pain guy or whatever, you know, it's fine. It, you'll get the referrals because you're the pain guy. Uh, if you, you know, if you want to do a regenerative medicine practice, you're probably not going to get a lot of referrals from other providers, mostly word of mouth. It might be online, might be marketing, SEO, uh, you know, uh, talks that you guys may, get, might give, seminars, because that's a very different patient population. They usually, you know, is out of network or, you know, out of pocket usually, so very different. I mean, typically, I don't get... Uh, a PRP injection request from an ortho, they're probably gonna do a scope, they're probably doing something else. The primary care, they might or might not know about it, might not think about it, but regardless, that, that said, it really depends on what kind of practice you want. If you wanna be the chronic pain guy, you're gonna be full pretty quickly because a lot of the 
brain practice guys, they want to just give you patience. They want to keep, keep the patience. Uh, if you want that perfect sports and kind of spine kind of practice, unless you market a bunch and you're involved with athletes and you're doing weekend coverage or you're doing events and you're part of academic hospital and teaching, you're not going to get a lot of referrals unless it's word of mouth. So with my practice, it was mostly word, uh, word of mouth, having a number of um, similar thinking, uh, you know, physicians and providers around me. So I get a referrals from therapists, acupuncturists, massage therapists, chiropractors, family members, the chamber of commerce. I mean, it could be any of those. And once that happens, then, you know, the word of mouth starts going, then, you know, oh, can you see my aunt? Can you see my uncle? And then yep. next thing you know, get busier. But the only way I was able to do it is because I had other income sources. If all I did was outpatient regenerative medicine and, you know, this is impossible to get busy five days a week unless I had a team of marketers. So I had the second income of the subacute using that and, you know, having diverse income sources makes it a lot easier. All right, Dr. Salad, our, our favorite is on right now. He says, first off, big kudos to Dr. Tariq for helping med students, a man of my own heart. <laughs> Omar is my partner and my and she mentored both of me. So. <laughs> and then he asked, um, am I on a standing desk at this time or am I sitting? <laughs> he's for sure at a standing desk. He never he doesn't have enough energy to I mean he had too much energy, he can't sit still. So <laughs> I'm sitting right now, Dr. Sloan. I bought my standing desk. It should be here in a couple of weeks, hopefully. Right. And then he says, another good way to get business is to train med students and residents. This is true. Some will go into primary care and they will remember you when they graduate and have a comfort level with you if you taught them and treated them properly. That is, Omar is so good at giving back and he has um, mentored me, obviously, and just has really been a big source of me wanting to even do the virtual physiatry mentors because he's been such a wonderful mentor to me. Our offices I, are right across from each other. So. <laughs> I've never met him. I've talked to him on Twitter and stuff, but like, I feel like I want to be him, you know? Oh, That's we should do, maybe we'll have you guys all on and we can do like a private talk, practice talk yeah. or something. Yeah, right, that would be great. good. I, I can't yeah. wait to meet you guys in person at APM. I'm know, there every year. I know. I yes, like, we're going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, B, should you do the honors? Those are all the all questions. All right. So last question is, we asked all of our guests, if you were not a PM&R physician, what would you be? And you can tell us in medicine and out of medicine if you want to. So just the way that my personality is, I'll probably do both medicine and out of medicine, you know? So I want to do public, I want to do public health. I want to do it for a long time. And I, my goal was to maybe work at WHO or UNICEF or something like that. Because I grew up in Pakistan. I saw the disparity in care and and things like that, and I felt like it could make a big difference. Um, but then at the same time, I would love to be a DJ, so specifically a trance DJ. <laughs> so I don't know. I just I just love your trance. So. All right. <laughs> Some great questions, great answers. All right. So um, I guess that's it. If anyone doesn't have any more questions, what is the best way for you know if anyone has any questions to reach out to you? How how should they do that? Uh, I think Twitter is a good way. Um, I'm happy to, um, you know, my, my website is uh, Optimal Health Medical Fitness, O-P-P-I-M-A-L, OptimalHealthMedicalFitness.com. You can always uh, call email from there as well. I'm kind of excited to hopefully start in-person uh, rotation as soon because I get to do the, have, have the students, you know, do injections and do ultrasound with me and that kind of stuff versus watching it. But right. hopefully whoever's on it right now is, you know, getting the most they can. And a lot of them actually are rotating after this within the PM&R, uh, you know, a couple of months from now or maybe next month. 
So I did everything I can to prepare them for that next yeah, rotation. Yeah, will be rock stars on those rotations. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are doing a great job. I think it's awesome, you know, what, what you're doing out there for, for our community. So thank you so much for joining us. Yes, we appreciate it. I know. We're going to have such, we're going to have our own table. We're going to do a thing at the next day. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, you know, you can always follow us on IG, Facebook, YouTube videos. Um, and we'd also like to thank Baylor Dallas and University of Minnesota. So they were the two programs that started off our IG takeovers last week. Um, They'd be great. We have uh, Monday is Western and Wednesday will be um, Georgetown. So be it's only water, but cheers. Yeah. Cheers, guys. <laughs> awesome. Yes. All right. We'll see you guys next week. We appreciate it. Oh, and next week, sorry, before I forget, will be um, John. John. Yep, he's a uh, resident of University of Minnesota, and he's actually doing a lot of um, putting together a great educational resource for PMNR called Foam, and we'll go into more detail about that next week. So yeah. join us then. Have a great week, guys. All right. Bye.